That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and this is The Great America Show. We'll begin today with a confession. I'm not much on worrying over America's standing or our reputation in the world. In plain Texas talk, I don't give much of a hoot what any other country thinks of us, and I'm sure that's reciprocal. Live and let live is a pretty good way to do business and, for that matter, to live your life. But have you noticed there haven't been any reports of late about how the world feels about us or our president? USA Today or the Washington Post used to frequently report what folks overseas thought about us and our president. The media liked to print reactions to President Trump from Italy or Sweden, wherever. Those foreigners weren't thrilled, of course, about that America First stuff. But news editors and publishers love to print those colorful reader reactions, good for circulation. But we don't read much lately about how the Brits, the French, other Euros feel about our president. Editors, for some reason, now don't want readers to feast on those colorful comments about President Biden and his hyperinflationary ways, his $6-a-gallon gas, empty shelves that once teemed with baby formula, or the mess he made of his Afghan exit and his lost walkabouts in the White House, his bumbling appearance at the NATO summit, you remember, or his new presidential initiative. We'll call that his Ukraine plan. We'll call it peace through incoherence. Did I mention the raging sky-high crime rates in Democrat-run cities now and the Biden disapproval ratings that have followed this dreary, dismal first 14 months in office. Our guest today is a kindred conservative spirit from Great Britain to give us an international perspective of how President Biden and our nation is doing. I'm delighted to introduce now Nigel Farage, former commodities trader, former member of the European Parliament from 1999 to 2020, a founder of the populist UK Independence Party, the Brexit Party, predecessor to the Reform UK. One man can still change history in the old country, and Nigel Farage is that man. Now a broadcaster and presenter on the GB News with much higher ratings than Piers Morgan. Nigel, it is great to have you on The Great America Show, and uh, it is, uh, for our audience, a, a, a rare treat because we're watching you from afar across the pond uh, and you are doing all sorts of amazing things. Uh, and I love the fact that you took on one of my favorite media heroes, Pierce Morgan. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he is, uh, he is quite a unique character, uh, one that I've never particularly, you know, uh, relished. I'll put it that way. What in the world uh, is going on there between you two? This is a this is big media stuff. Yes, it really is, and and, and Lou, great to talk to you. It really is. Uh, uh, Piers Morgan uh, is somebody who likes to be incredibly boastful to tell the world uh, what a great hero he is, 
uh, tell the world that he's the best, that he's the greatest. Well, it might have worked for Muhammad Ali for a bit, but it doesn't work for Piers Morgan. And I was brought up to believe that pride comes before a fall. If you stand up and boast and tell the world how good you are, something bad inevitably befalls you. And so I found myself exactly four weeks ago today, I was at Mar-a-Lago with a chap I know who lives there called Donald Trump. He's a very interesting character. And we were talking about what was happening in UK media uh, and that Piers was coming back onto British television and that Piers had booked an interview with Donald Trump. And I said, look, mm, okay, if he pretends that he's still your friend, I think you ought to know what he's been writing about you and what he's been saying about you. And he sort of looked at me a bit quizzically. So all I did was produce a series of articles written in the Daily Mail by Piers Morgan about Donald Trump, in which he was really very, very derogatory about Trump, about his presidency, about his policies. So all I did was tell Donald Trump the truth. Trump kind of blew a gasket, I think, when he, when he read this stuff. But all I did was tell him the truth, because he deserved to know it. And as a result of that, I am now Morgan's sworn, mortal, public enemy number one. Um, and he keeps throwing all this abuse at me. And you know what, Lou? I just ignore all of it. I just ignore all of it. Um, and and sure enough, you know, uh, the big the big I am that Piers is, um, you know, now finds himself uh, with daily ratings for his show lower than mine on GB News, and that's where we are. Well, congratulations, and uh, I'm I would say the better man is winning, wouldn't you? Well, it's not for me to judge, dear boy. That's for that. that, that that's for those that are um, going to be our listeners here. But look, but it is a classic tale, isn't it? You know, it's a classic tale of humanity. You know, hubris, um, and then nemesis tends to follow, and uh, that's the mistake that Morgan's made. But I suspect one of the reasons that you don't like him. Also, there is no intellectual consistency to Piers's journalism. You know, you and I believe in things. We believe in themes. Uh, you know, we follow those themes through all the work that we do. With Piers, it's all the sort of the, the sort of cheap, quick hit. That's really all that he's after. And um, and there you are. And, and I have to say that that I think many of the people that work at Fox um, are very, very upset because he staged something that I think was a disgrace. Yeah. He said that Trump stormed out of the interview. And that is just not true. And I, and I think if I was if I was working at Fox or Fox Business, I'd be very unhappy that one of my fellow because he's a Fox Nation presenter now as well, that one of my fellow presenters had upset Trump as much as this. I'd be very annoyed indeed. Well, you know, I I talked with the the president uh, right after that interview had taken place, and he was saying, look, that that nonsense just didn't happen, and uh, saying precisely what you're saying. And he went on, I think, that uh, Pierce asking four or five questions after it was supposed to be end of interview, and, and and, and Trump is a media savvy fellow, if ever there were one, and he knows better than to react in that situation where he's getting frustrated. But he finally had to, you know, to, to leave and to be firm about it. But he was cordial throughout. Uh, and yes. and uh, I said, I said to a, a couple of people, you know, my gosh, Rupert may fire this fellow or Lachlan. Because that was just pure staging and certainly not up to Fox's usual high standards. Uh, What's your reaction? No, I agree entirely with that. I mean, listen, you know, 
what happened was uh, that that interview ran much, much longer than had been agreed. And when I say much longer, I don't mean five minutes longer or 10 minutes longer. I mean about 45 minutes longer. And in the end, Trump had to get tough and call a close. And it closed. And you can hear the audio tape of Morgan saying, thank you very much for the interview. Trump saying, thanks. He stood up. Okay, guys, turn the camera off. I got to go. It was not him storming out. It was presented in a completely false way. And I mean, why would you, why would any well-known business figure or sports figure or celebrity or politician, why would anybody now want to go on with Piers Morgan? How on earth could you trust him? Exactly. And you can't. And you know, you were talking about the quick hit artist that he is. He's a, a quick hit artist, and he is a hit or miss uh, uh, artist who most often, I think, at least misses. Uh, so I wasn't a bit dismayed uh, to see you to see you deal uh, aptly with him. Uh, well, that's very sweet of you. And I, I want to turn now, if I may, to Nigel Farage, broadcaster. Uh, instead of the the political figure that we know you to be, and, uh, and which has served the UK very well over the course of your career in politics, what is what is your life all about right now? What are you what are you doing? What are you contemplating? Well, I mean, I was a commodity trader and a commodity broker. I worked on the London Metal Exchange dealing in non-ferrous metals, copper, aluminum, lead, zinc, zinc, tin, nickel. That's what I did for 20 years. So I never had, I never had any political aspirations whatsoever. Seriously, I mean it. I got involved in politics because I just felt that our country had taken a completely wrong direction. We'd given away our ability to run our own affairs. We'd given away our sovereignty. Uh, We'd given away the special link that we had with the Commonwealth and the English-speaking peoples of the world. And we'd given it all to a bunch of bureaucrats in Brussels. And frankly, Lou, nobody had the guts to stand up and fight. And and I thought, well, you know what? I am that soldier. So that's why I got involved in politics. And you know what? Against all the odds despite the fact that for most of my campaigning life, we had everybody against us, every media organization, everybody against us. Do you know what we did? We secured a great historic victory. And so I thought to myself, well, most careers in politics end in failure because people go on for too long. So I thought after Brexit, with us free, do you know what I'm going to do? For one of the first times in my life, I'm going to sell my stock at the high of the market. So that's exactly what I did. I'm very happy to cash in my chips. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to go on influencing public debate and public opinion. So I'm broadcasting on this GB News channel, which is relatively new. uh, but We're building an audience there. Um, I'm speaking at events. Um, I'm doing stuff on social media. I mean, bear in mind, we're a much smaller country than the USA, but I've got 3.3 million followers out there Excellent. across social media. So I'm busy engaged with them. Um, I will be doing a tour of Australia later on this year, a speaking tour. Um, I've got a couple of trips to America planned where I'm going to be speaking. Um, and, and it won't just be conservative activists, it'll be at universities and things like that. And my big basic message at the moment is the Western world is in peril uh, in a way that it frankly never has been before. We face external threats, and by that I mean above all the rise of China, uh, let alone what could happen with Putin, although I I do think historically we've made some very bad mistakes there. But then we have the internal threat. 
And the internal threat is a modern day form of Marxism. It is a campaign to make us hate ourselves, loathe our history, be ashamed of who we are, and to divide us all up, whether we're black or white or brown, whether we're heterosexual, homosexual, whatever we are, identity politics is about dividing us from each other. It's about making us feel we're not part of a family, we're not part of a unit, we're not part of a state, we're not part of a nation. It's the attempt to rubbish and destroy all of these things. And the saddest part of all of this is that our educational establishments right across the Western world, they are playing this game and they are poisoning, literally poisoning the minds of young people. They're not teaching them critical thinking. We have a one-sided debate. You know, one argument is good and moral, the other is evil. And so really, for me, for me, my big, big emphasis is to explain to people that far from being ashamed of our history, we should understand our history, appreciate our history. There's much of it, actually, that we ought to be immensely proud of. And to point out to people that this is the exact playbook, the exact playbook that Lenin used in Russia against the Tsarist regime to turn the Russian people against their country, against their leaders, against their identity, so that this wonderful, glorious new Marxist world could come into being, which of course it did in 1917, um, and led to a regime that in the end killed 40 million of its own people. And the danger is we're headed down that path. And that is the thing that really fixates me. That is the campaign uh, that I'm engaged on. And there's a really important point here for your listeners to this podcast, and it's this. If America falls, the entirety of the Western world falls. The battle in America is absolutely crucial. And you know all of the things that I've just said, the, the, the denouncing of many of the founding fathers of America, the removal of statues, the attempt to change history, the so-called campaign for racial equality in Black Lives Matter, which actually all it's doing is dividing people and turning people against each other. And the fact that the Democrats um, under Biden are now increasingly being influenced by these hard left influences. Um, now, it all sounds horrific, and yet, and yet I do see a great opportunity, and it's this. You know, the vast majority of ordinary, decent, working Americans, just like the Brits with Brexit, the vast majority of Americans, if you tell them to be ashamed of America and ashamed of its history, they say, well, well no, we're not. Don't tell us to be ashamed. You know, our granddaddy served in the Pacific in the war or whatever it may be. We're actually proud of our history. And all the polling that I see suggests that up to half of Democrat voters do not want this extreme left wing ideology. So, America, please save yourselves. And if you do, you'll save all the rest of us, too. And it's that important. Well, I think we'll be partners in, in that survival. Uh, as we have through throughout uh, our history, I, I I also think that it's important for for Americans to hear your voice because we are talking now about the Marxist left in this part in this country. Mm. The Marxist left is the Democratic Party. They're trying to pose as the traditional loyal opposition, when in point of fact they are a fifth column uh, by any definition. They are working to subvert everything that is American. 
and their and their animating ideology is Marxism, totalitarianism, and we're seeing it in almost every policy enunciation from this administration, the Biden administration, whether it's domestic policy or foreign policy, uh, it is straightforwardly a, a government of uh, edict and fiat uh, and executive order. And behind all of this is big money, uh, whether it's the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, the, the Silicon social media tech titans, or whether it is George Soros, who is trying to work out whatever um, psychological basis he has uh, for uh, spending his money and in what direction. But here, Soros, Zuckerberg, and the oligarchs, they would be called in any other country where this not America, uh, they are right now laying out a blueprint and executing it for the destruction of what is the American uh, culture, history, uh, the Judeo-Christian history of this country and culture, uh, and it is a remarkable onslaught. Uh, and I and I'm and I'm curious to know what is your view as we have a president who is so obviously impaired. Uh, he reminds one certainly uh, of uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1919 when he had a stroke in the White House. His wife Edith decides to run the country for the next year, almost a year and a half and does so, or FDR, where pictures were not allowed of him, a man who could not walk unaided, uh, pictures were just not taken of him, never permitted uh, to show his disability. Uh, it doesn't rise to the level of either Woodrow Wilson or certainly or, or to uh, President Biden, but it was uh, a, a, an elephant in the room, uh, certainly for, uh, for him, that uh, that inability to walk without help. And in this case with Joe Biden, it is the media deciding that they're inexplicably, we can have a president who has a nuclear briefcase 12 feet away from him nearly at all times. And we're letting him manage, lead this country uh, to the brink of, I don't know what, whether it be the Ukraine conflict or what could be a miscalculation with the communist Chinese. Your thoughts? I'm just astonished, you know, when Donald Trump said things that people didn't like as president, everyone screamed, the 25th Amendment, move the 25th, the man's mad, let's get rid of him. Why is no one talking about the 25th Amendment with a president who, as you say, clearly is just not up to the job and whose foreign policy decisions have affected the whole of the world in the most calamitous way? There is absolutely no way in which Putin would have invaded Ukraine if he hadn't seen what he thought was Western weakness over that horrifying decision to unilaterally walk away from Afghanistan, to do so without any reference to his neighbours, any reference to his friends in NATO, to his colleagues. Um, so, yeah, I think some of this is catastrophic. And as I say, the 25th at some point simply has to be moved. On the points about Soros and Zuckerberg and all these people, well, I mean, look, I remember a few years ago, I got up in the European Parliament um, where my speeches were not always popular with those present, but I enjoyed them. And I, <laughs> and I got up one day and I said, there are 243 of you in this room today with me who have been named by George Soros's organization as friends of George Soros. 
I said, I'm going to be writing to each and every one of you to ask what financial support, what free holidays, uh, what benefits you've had from this great friendship with Mr. Soros. And you know, I didn't get a single reply. So we know about the influence of Soros and the others. But hey, all of a sudden, there is a shining knight in armor who has appeared on our side of the battle. And I'd never been aware that Elon Musk had ever backed Donald Trump, had ever supported the Republicans. But here's somebody who believes in open free speech in a democratic society. And that is why he's put that consortium together. Um, And I know there are still one or two hurdles to jump over, but he's put the consortium together to buy Twitter. He said that Trump would be welcome back on that platform, that it was morally wrong for him to be taken off. And isn't it bizarre? Trump was off and the Taliban was still on. I mean, you couldn't even you couldn't even make some of this stuff up, could you really? So exactly. I do. I'm awful. So I do actually think, Lou, that uh, that maybe Musk is, uh, is is here and maybe this marks an important beginning of a turning of the tide. Um, and it's much, much needed because uh, whatever the arguments around the events of November 2020, one thing is for certain, and that is that American mainstream media and social media did their utmost in a presidential election to make sure that the American voting public did not have full access to the facts. And that is absolutely disgraceful. Let's hope Musk is able to start turning that tide. You know, I have to ask you this. What is your your perception? What is that of your countrymen when they see the United States in 2020, uh, the attorney general, the highest placed law enforcement official in the country, knows that a candidate for president is lying, knows that his son is lying, knows the contents of the the so-called laptop from hell, uh, but decides not to intervene in an election. And so by doing, intervened in the election on behalf of the liar, the man who is now ensnared in a scandal that involves much of his own family uh, and China and Ukraine. uh, And the list, unfortunately, goes on. We have made a huge historical mistake, uh, a mistake that goes to the national, the issue, the foundation of our national security. And as you point out, it goes to the free world. Western civilization has someone of immense influence and power who should never have been there executing policies and following an ideology that is alien to most Americans. Your thoughts from, yeah. from the UK? It's a tricky one in, in some ways because, I mean, look, don't underestimate the amount of admiration, respect, And even, I'm going to say to you, a a hint of sort of jealousy almost that we have about America because we increasingly eat American food. We uh, increasingly watch American film. Um, I'm pleased to say used to listen to a lot of our music. Um, But 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 the cultural the cultural ties and bonds between our two countries are greater and stronger now than they have been at any point in history. And we look up to America, you know, as being a bigger, stronger version of who we are. But we currently look at America uh, with its incompetent leader, with the stories that we're seeing, hearing, reading about the massive growth in crime in American cities. 
Um, and I have to tell you, a lot of commentators in the United Kingdom, but just folk I speak to, are beginning to say to themselves, are America's best days behind it? So we're beginning to ask ourselves questions about what America is becoming. And I don't think that's unfair, to be honest with you, because unless America does start to turn this around and, and hey, you know what, the midterms are a great opportunity, aren't they, to start that process from moving again. Unless America turns this around, uh, yeah, as I say, we look at it, we're a little bit bewildered that this country that we've admired so much appears to be in so much of a mess. And yet the causal agents at work we share uh, whether it be that uh, Marxist left that is not only in the UK or Europe or the United States, but global. And we seem to have not a, a worldview, if you will, of the, the battle that we've, and I'm speaking about Americans, mm. that we're in. Uh, and it is a, uh, a battle that the Republican Party doesn't even recognize quite yet. Uh, and while, the, while the Democrats... The Marxist left is as vicious and as uh, focused and as effective as you could imagine, taking control of not only the uh, campaigns and, and uh, platforms and agendas, but also the electoral process itself. Uh, it is something bewildering to uh, those of us who are conservatives in the United States, conservative Republicans, to, to, to watch it's it is a mystery why there is so much passivity in the face of such aggression well that is why of course the whole season that the republican party is going through at the moment of the primaries of the selection for candidates for the house and for senate is so vital and so important because just as the british conservative party was riddled with Remainers, riddled with people who did not want Brexit to happen and have done their best to sabotage it, frankly, ever since. You have a similar problem. You have rhinos. So it's rhinos and Remainers on different sides of the pond. And I think if these selection processes get rid um, of those rhinos and, and, and get proper conservatives, but people have also got some courage and some will to fight, then, then we might just have a Republican Party that is not as passive so i do think i do think these selections that are currently going on uh, will to a large extent help to shape the future of republicanism well i certainly hope so and i and i look forward to that to, to seeing fighters in the leadership instead of rhinos uh, who have sold out to so many people they don't quite know which uh, uh, you know chit to mark up uh, it, it's a little confusing for them i'm sure I want to I want to turn just very quickly, uh, if you would, to to Ukraine. Our Congress has just voted with 150 uh, Republicans supporting it, 40 billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. That makes it a little over 50 billion that we will have spent uh, if the Senate approves it. And if there are so many rhinos, of course, in in the Senate that they will have to. Uh, your thoughts about what we're doing. Uh, what UK is doing, what Europe is doing in support of Ukraine in its battle against the invaders? Well, I think for certain that um, <clears throat> Boris Johnson, who's not been a very decisive prime minister, but on Ukraine, he has been very decisive. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, you know, we have given an extraordinary amount of training, military equipment and aid to 
Ukraine. Uh, America has kind of followed on behind, in a sense, uh, under, under Biden's leadership. The European Union, oh, they're split down the middle. They haven't got a clue what to do. As you can imagine, uh, people at the polls are very scared and very worried about what's going on. And the Germans, ah, yes, the Germans. I remember when I remember when Trump in 2018, in 2018, Trump addressed the United Nations. He said Germany is making itself too dependent on Russian oil and Russian gas. They're making a huge mistake. And the German delegation within the UN building in New York openly laughed at him. But my goodness me, wasn't he right? So there is really no proper reaction at all from the European Union. Lou, I want to say this. Historically, I gave a speech eight years ago in the European Parliament where I said, if we go on extending, expanding NATO and the European Union eastwards up to the borders of Russia, we are poking the Russian bear with a stick and it will lead to a war in Ukraine. I said that eight years ago because I understood historically the Russians are paranoid about being about being surrounded or being invaded. I mean, look at their history. I mean, they lost almost 30 million people in World War II. So I was always worried about this. I always felt we were making a huge historical mistake and I was never afraid to say so. Now, none of that justifies much of what Russia has done over the course of the last few weeks, uh, the treatment of civilians, the sharing, the shelling of Mariupol. Uh, there are many, many ghastly things that have happened. But, you know, Ukraine is a deeply corrupt country. Those eastern territories are heavily, heavily divided. And I just want to say this. We should, we should, the West, led by America, should be talking, not just to the Ukrainian president, they should be talking to Putin as well. We should be trying to find a way of getting a negotiated peace settlement. My fear, my real fear, is that by promising war crimes trials, rather like Nuremberg in 1946, by boxing Putin into a corner, by not giving him any way out or any means of even talking about a peace deal, that we are boxing into a corner a man who may well have now lost the rational function. And if we push this man too far, it is not absolutely beyond the realms of comprehension that we might finish up with an horrendous conflict with some sort of nuclear weapons being used. It's all well and good. If you want to send aid to help people, that's fine. But we need some clear strategic thinking. Now, it may well be that negotiations with Putin get nowhere, but we should try and we should remind ourselves of what the great Winston Churchill said about these situations. He said, George Orr is better than war war. And I just scratch my head and cannot understand why the West aren't doing more. To, to your point, I've called on this president uh, I, specifically to join with China and urge a negotiation upon Putin. Mm. Uh, and to do so uh, will would create all sorts of cross currents and forces, but nonetheless, its leadership and uh, to insist that this man take an exit 
uh, from what is his his debacle, Putin's debacle by his design. We've got to give him a way out and we've Absolutely. got to give Ukraine a way forward. Absolutely. Uh, I want to say, Nigel, it is always instructive and great fun to talk with you. We thank you very much for your time. I hope you'll come back soon and uh, we can further solve the world's problems. I absolutely will, Lou. It's always a delight to speak to you. You get the last word here on the show, and uh, please, please have at it. All of you out there, don't just agree with what Lou Dobbs puts out there. That's important, but resolve to do something about it. We need people not just to agree with us, but to stand up, to fight, to help, because we've got to save the West. Amen. And thank you so much. God bless you, Nigel. Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage. He made a lot of great history in the UK. And thank you for being with us, everybody. We'll be talking with John Solomon, Catherine Engelbrecht, GOP pollster Robert Cahaley, Congressman Ronnie Jackson, and Senator Ron Johnson all this week. Please join us till tomorrow. God bless you and God bless America.